primarily, we're definitely uh, concerned with H-Alpha and putting out good scopes in that respect. I mean, we have our uh, pressure tuning technology that is, uh, you know, different than what you see uh, from others in the industry. With that, we're able to give people just a nice view, nice crisp view uh, of the sun. I mean, we also do uh, calcium K and white lights. I mean, there's really something for, you know, every interest and every bill, so to speak. Uh, typically, our systems are about 0.7 to 0.65 angstroms, so still a sub-angstrom system. With that, you're going to get a lot, a lot of granulation across the surface. You'll still be able to see faint filaments and uh, uh, hot spots, flares. Uh, you, you're definitely, definitely great for uh, watching the proms come off and go off into space. Talking again about the different capabilities of what people can use these for, I mean, somebody can easily step into uh, going from H-alpha to white light to calcium K, you know, just with a couple different accessories. You know, the objectives on these are even nice enough that they can use them at night uh, and get image quality uh, views at night as well. It's all about solar observing on this episode, folks. So if you're into looking at the sun, this is the episode for you. Because Faye, Ben, and Brian from Lunt Solar Telescopes joins us to talk about their solar filters that they have available as, along with their new line of modular telescopes. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Oh, okay, let's go ahead and get started. Um, I want to welcome the uh, guys from Lunt Telescopes. Today is going to be about solar observing, and I'm really excited about this one because I cut my teeth on solar observing. My very first professional job in professional astronomy was working at the Mauna Loa Solar Observatory, where we looked at the sun in two major wavelengths, plus we also took pictures of the corona. And so this whole, this is a, this is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. Also, to amateur astronomers that are listening, we're coming up on solar max. And for those of you who don't know, the sun has an activity cycle of about 11 years where we go into a minimum and then a maximum uh, activity cycle with its magnetic fields. And so we are about to embark on another solar max, which means there's a lot of really interesting things to see on the sun. And we're going to talk about all of that today. So I'm going to bring up my cohort in crime. Uh, Dustin, you out there? I am. This one's actually really exciting for me. It's not something I've done much of. I haven't done much solar. Unlike you, Tony, I did not cut my teeth on it. And we've got Faye, Ben, and Brian here who, uh, you know, the Lunt team, this is what Lunt is known for. They are the specialists on this topic. And <laughs> if there's a question, you know, this this team, that's what they they do. They can make that stuff happen. And they produce some of the best instruments in the world for, for this type of uh, imaging and observing. So really, really great to have you here. Thank you all for joining. And um, yeah, let's kick this off. We're going to talk about the sun. I mean, this is this is that time. He, like he just said, we're going into a more active solar cycle here. That's got to be, I bet you have like celebrations at Lunt when it's time for that, right? Yeah, more, more or less. I mean, the truth is people have been kind of, uh, everyone's aware of the minimum versus the maximum. So we, we kind of see that kind of flow come with it. And it's not to say that people are shying away from solar when it is a minimum, but the maximum will certainly get people kind of riled up and ready to go. 
Sure. So uh, I have a couple of questions just kind of about Lunt in general, just as a company. How So how did Lunt get started? I don't really know that story. I think I have to go to Brian here. <laughs> Well, actually, why don't we talk? We, well, yeah, well, let's talk about Lunt as a company, but let's also talk about who you guys are. So introduce yourselves and say what you do at Lunt, and then maybe we could talk a little bit about the company, too. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm Faye Roman, uh, or Roman, whichever you prefer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I've been doing customer service here for about eight years. I came on with Lunt in uh, 2012, and it's just been really enjoyable, you know, learning about this niche market and, uh, you know, working with people that are super excited to acquire our scopes. Uh, getting them in their hands and then later, you know, seeing results, whether it be through, you know, email feedback or photos that they submit to us. I mean, it's just uh, uh, really is a neat industry to be in. Yeah. Uh, Benjamin Lombardo here. I'm also in customer service. I get to follow our production manager around Brian a lot. So I get to have my hands in some other things, but primarily, you know, just the talking to people directly, some tactical stuff. I could do some testing every now and again, but it's definitely under the wing of the big guy. So uh, Brian Stevens, uh, I guess the, you call me the project manager or uh, production, production manager. manager, the king of all. You take take your pick. <laughs> optical design. Uh, but, uh, I just a uh, little of everything around here. Uh, anywhere from designing and building new telescopes and keeping an eye on production and having that all run to all the new projects we're actually doing for for uh, for other entities uh, and for future future projects ahead of time. That's my gig. So you're the you're the big guy he was just referencing then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, him. he he is exactly who I was referencing. The man with the plan. Yeah, the man with the plan. That's not a bad title. The man with the plan. <laughs> it says that yeah, get a desk plate that puts us on, yeah. on your desk. <laughs> That's man not a plan. bad title. It's a good place Esquire. to start. <laughs> I'm just interested because it really is a realm I don't know too much about. And I get asked questions about it all the time, you know, from uh, people looking to do imaging. Obviously, you know, the if you want to take a picture of stars, the sun's a pretty, pretty obvious uh, target. You know, uh, it's pretty easy to find. Yeah, I, I have often felt like in, in, in the hobby of amateur astronomy, this is the one uh, aspect of it that kind of gets I don't want to say overlooked, but everybody gets so into these nebulae and 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 galaxies and all and planets and stuff like this that the sun just you know um, sort of gets left behind a little bit. And the reason I like it is that well, you can do the observing in the daytime, and that's really great. You don't got to stay up all night, and you can see what you're doing when you're messing around with your focus knobs and things like that. But the sun also offers some real interesting and intricate phenomena that you can either image or observe with your eye. Now, I and I always think that in this stuff is is uh, really important because it, it happens real time. When you're looking, you could watch using one of your telescopes a filament erupt or a prominence go off the limb of the sun. So so these are things that you can just watch happen. Just pull up a chair and and sit through your eyepiece and just, you know, start eating popcorn. It's that much fun. Things change that rapidly on the disk of the sun. So I'm I'm glad we're talking about this here because I'm hoping we'll introduce people to this aspect of the hobby. Now, before I ask you to introduce yourself, uh, Dustin was asking you about talking about your company. So maybe now's a good time to introduce us to what Lunt makes and and what your what your different kinds of uh, uh, products are. Sure. I mean, uh, 
you know, primarily we're definitely uh, concerned with H alpha and putting out good scopes in that respect. I mean, we have our uh, pressure tuning technology that is, uh, you know, different than what you see uh, from others in the industry. Um, you know, with that, we're able to give people just a nice view, nice crisp view uh, of the sun. I mean, we also do uh, calcium K and white lights. I mean, there's really something for, you know, every interest and every bill, so to speak. I mean, uh, you know, you can get entry level white light, uh, you know, pretty easily, uh, economically speaking. Uh, and then, you know, move on up to these H alpha scopes where we have, you know, observatories uh, hitting us up for these items and, uh, you know, successfully installing and uh, getting great results. So it, it, it's a really, uh, uh, really awesome to work with that type of. Uh, yeah, well, let's drill down into that just a little bit, as as we should probably say pretty close to the beginning of this podcast, uh, looking at the sun can be very dangerous through just any old telescopes. Sure. At no point do you want to point a telescope at the sun without proper filters within it. And there's very few uh, times when you can look directly at the sun through an eyepiece in a telescope without some kind of special filter. So you want to make very sure that you do that. Now, one of the things that we do not suffer from in solar observing is any lack of photons. There are plenty of photons out there coming at us. And so one of the primary goals in solar telescopes is to basically you're throwing away 99, I don't know what percentage of light, but a lot. It's way over 90% of the light. You're just throwing it away uh, and narrowing it down or filtering it down into very specific wavelengths. And you talked about three of them. Um, white light is the simplest of all to do. And it's, it's where you basically put a filter in front of your optical tube that reflects almost all of the light. Is that correct? Is that a good way of looking at it? Or you can use a solar wedge in the back of your telescope as well, depending a on solar, the size. Yes. A, a solar wedge? What's that? I'm... A white light wedge. It's a, a prism device designed to um, move away 94% of the light coming from the sun itself into a trap in the back and allows 6% of light to come up through the eyepiece after a neutral density filter and a more than likely a polarizing filter. So you're still at about close to 1% of the light coming through, uh, but it's not necessary to put something on the front of your telescope. It gives a better oh, view and there's no um, diffraction or any kind of troubles associated with the, with the optical device that you would put on the front of a telescope. But I always thought the advantage of putting things out front was that you didn't heat up the the OTA too much, uh, letting all that photons come in. Is that just not an issue with a wedge? I'm, no, I'm the, wedge actually, wedge. the wedge actually still puts all the heat to the back light trap and, and takes care of it in that respect. You're, you're, you're not getting a huge buildup inside the telescope because it's not actually touching anything inside the telescope. Okay. And so it, it the wedge is catching it before it comes to focus. And yes, exactly. But yes. all of the photons from the sun are still going down the tube assembly, exactly. right? Exactly. So that thing still must get hot. Uh, it gets a little warm, but it's yeah. not too bad. Okay. All right. So I, when you look at the sun in white light, it's very similar to one of the simple techniques that one uses for uh, uh, looking at the sun with nothing at all, which is sort of uh, maybe putting in a small uh, aperture mask to cut down the amount of light in your aperture and then shining the light that comes out of the telescope onto a distant wall or to a piece of cardboard or something that you then look at with your own eyes, uh, something indirect. And 
what you're doing is you're looking at all of the light that comes from the sun, just a smaller amount of it in a safe amount that your eyes can handle. And with what are some of the things you can see in white light? Well, most namely would definitely be sunspots, which, right. uh, you know, now that we are moving towards a little more activity on the solar surface, uh, I was just seeing on spaceweather.com yesterday, um, a nice sunspot forming. Uh, you know, it's going to be more excited for people that are using white light because that's definitely one of the main things that you're looking for uh, when viewing in white light. Yeah, that granulation. I, I, I don't know. I feel like probably the white light will give you a better view than just the the projection, in my opinion. I mean, I'm obviously we don't do too much projection here, but we've had a few people out in the field when we go to star parties around local areas who do that kind of stuff. And it's definitely neat to see. I think without being in the industry, of course, I would still, I would choose a white wedge or maybe even a front-mounted filter over the projection just for the definition, just for the resolution of your granulation. Oh, sure. Well, yeah, because, you're, you know, you're, you're going to lose a lot by just shining a light onto a piece of white cardboard or whatever it is. But, yeah. for, the, <laughs> but, but for the longest time, you know, I mean, there was a, I think it might even still be going on. In Boulder, Colorado, there was a solar telescope that every single day they had, they had dedicated. All it did was project the disk of the sun onto a onto a piece of paper that somebody would go in and, and draw the sunspots of the day. And they had been doing that since the 40s, I think. And of course, there's a record of sunspots that go even further back than that. But I don't know. I mean, up until just very recently, um, that's how sunspots were being recorded using projection technique. But you're right. As you point out, you don't see a lot of the detail. No, but I think you're right. And I think it is still popular, especially with the customers, because if you go on some of the forums that I won't specifically name, there's there's tons of people constantly doing little drawings nonstop. That's that's just kind of a fun thing. Someone will kind of get out without a camera, do a drawing for someone else who will then go out and then take a picture of it for everyone else. So it's definitely still alive and active, in my opinion. Yeah, and it's a great way to get, I think, uh, kids in school mm -hmm. um, you know, introduced to astronomy because you can do this during the school day. You know, yeah, you that was... I think that was my first experience. I mean, I haven't been in the industry since uh, only since I've been with Lund about 2016. But that was my very first experience back in elementary, middle school. Is that exact kind of thing? Besides, of course, solar ovens, but those kind those aren't really as, as fruitful as anything else. <laughs> so to make your hot dogs in, you yeah, mean that's exactly. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's nothing like a hot dog cooked by the sun. <laughs> it, <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about, Tony, but. <laughs> I won't ask. So anyway, it's so interesting though. I mean, I knew that this would be something that came up early in this podcast would be the disclaimers. I, Tony's already thrown out a few. I'm sure that, you know, Lunt, you probably have to tell people constantly, you know, don't look at the sun without X piece of equipment, whatever it is, whether it's the wedge or you've got the solar specific telescope. And it's, you know, I, I know that's such an important message. But do you get people? Do you have people, Tony, or do you have people that contact Lunt that are asking? Like, is that a real question? Is it safe to use a high-powered telescope to look at the sun? Mostly just with the general public. Yeah, it's not too much Not too much direct. I mean, when we're out and about, people will talk to us about it and we'll kind of get random inquiries that way. But for the most part, people who are at our, our doorstep or our telephone doorstep, let's say, are, are pretty much off that path. They're aware of it. And yeah. we'll catch some conflictions like people wanting to use, this is really, really specific. People want to use a calcium K blocking filter on an already dedicated hydrogen alpha scope. And that's, I would say we get those more commonly, people mismatching parts that aren't specifically dangerous that just don't perform well. Like your, your light is far too dim putting a calcium K behind a hydrogen alpha. But for the most part, people don't tend to come at, come to us with these real 
let's say dangerous situations are already pretty much aware of what the, the specifics are and how to move forward past it. Yeah, and I well, just can't imagine I'm- that. Like, I can't imagine somebody sitting at home, you know, they're listening to the podcast and they're thinking like, there I was, I was about to point my 22 inch daub <laughs> at the sun, but then I heard Tony say <laughs> that might be a bad yes. idea. You know, like I just, I Thank can't. you, Mr. See, Tony. And it's the, <laughs> it's the scariest thing. You know, even when the, uh, the eclipse happened, I saw all of these solar products going up on Amazon and it was just like, you want to pull your hair out looking at this because there are companies like Lunt that, that do this for a living and that, that take the precautions to make sure that it's not only effective, this equipment is very good, but it's also very safe. And it's designed specifically for that purpose. But when I started seeing some of these things going up for, you know, a couple bucks to go outside and look at the sun, it's just like, oh, man, maybe people really don't know that looking at the sun is a bad idea. And you do not want to get a telescope and go outside and look at the sun with it. But maybe it is a message that that needs to be communicated more often. Well, Dustin, you won't remember this because you're just a young whippersnapper. But back in the day. There were telescopes that you could buy, and this is why I was so surprised, and I still want to learn more about this solar wedge that I think it was Ben that was just telling us about, is, you know, there there used to be telescopes you could buy that came with a sun filter and a moon filter. And the sun filter was designed to screw on to the back of the eyepiece and let you look at the sun. Now, you can already visualize, I think, the danger in that, right? You've got your telescope, let's say it's a four-inch Tasco. Tasco was one of the people that did this. And you're collecting a four-inch aperture worth of light of the sun, and you're concentrating it where the focus is, right where the eyepiece goes. Well, the heat would in no... And basically, it was some kind of cheap welder's glass, and it was a little tiny piece of glass. Well, of course, it would crack. And there were stories of people losing their eyesight uh, over um, over using those sol- those sun filters that came with yeah. these cheap telescopes, and so that that's why I I'm, I really do want to learn more about the solar wedge because it sounds yeah. like it's down there in the heat and doesn't get hot. Well, anything that happens at the back of the scope has to be, and, and feel free to correct me again. This is not my level of expertise going to come through when we're talking about uh, solar. I don't know too much about it. Uh, I've I've only ever taken one solar shot in my life. Um, it was actually with a Lunt scope, a 152, which I have to say is one of the most premium instruments I've ever used. Uh, just absolutely phenomenal. But um, it was uh, it was explained to me that if you don't have the HA filter on the front, right, you can save some money because it's very expensive to put that HA filter across the the full aperture of the telescope by getting something that's smaller in the back. But you have to catch the light early enough that it's not close enough to focus that it can burn through whatever it is that you're actually, you know, putting there. Depending on the placement. Yes. Uh, you can, you can go almost, you can usually go about two thirds of the way back sometimes with, uh, as long as your ERF or energy rejection filter is capable of taking the, taking the heat load. Um, <clears throat> general rule of thumb is, uh, the energy rejection filter should be about half the size of the of the actual aperture of the telescope. And that usually refers to it being, most of the Edelon systems being about, about halfway through in, uh, the actual light, light, light path. Well, that would lend to it being more cost-effective because it's oh, not, much, much, yeah. yeah. The, the size of the Edelon is very dependent on the actual cost of the telescope. So the smaller the Edelon that we can make in the largest of the aperture actually gives the, the customer 
the biggest bang for the buck by actually giving them the image size of the actual aperture, but using a smaller Edelon so that they don't have to pay for a full aperture Edelon as well. Because with a larger telescope, well, at least with a larger objective aperture, the front element being larger, you have more light gathering power. You can get more resolution on target, but producing a smaller HA filter in the back, I guess is what you're saying. It would save a lot of cost by not having to go with a larger um, Edelon? Exactly. Okay. And and so cutting that aperture, when you say you're cutting the aperture in the back, I guess I don't fully understand the mechanics, but does that mean that, um, so the opening in the back is not going to uh, be an exact match to the full image circle of what the back of the scope can produce? You're yeah, actually the cutting is actually at the, at the size of the image circle at the placement of where it's at. So if there's a, a 50 millimeter Edelon in the 100 millimeter telescope, it is actually taking the actual light path at the size of 50 millimeters. So you're not losing anything. There's no vignetting or anything like that. Okay. It's yeah, actually just in the chain so that it actually does all the filtering it needs to with, um, with, with the least amount of cost by having a smaller, ap- uh, smaller aperture on the actual Edelon itself. Yeah, I'd like to kind of like maybe we should define some of our terms here to people who don't know what an Edelon is. Um, it is it is a design or a type of filter that rejects light from different wavelengths and only for the one that you want. Um, whenever you're looking at the sun, uh, you you want you and you are tuning a filter at, at certain wavelengths, H-alpha, for example, being centered at 65, 62 angstroms, you're cutting out all of the wave, all of the light, except the light coming at you from that wavelength, plus or minus some kind of uh, uh, filter width. And the Edelon is the type of filter that they're using. There's other ways you can filter out light, but an Edelon is the type um, that you guys make. Um, so do you want to describe a little bit what one might look like or... Or uh, do you not want to go that far into detail? An Edelon is actually, well, our Edelons are made out of fused silica. Um, the plates are typically 1 100 to 1 200th wave front side, usually 1 50th wave back sides. They're held apart from each other at a distance of typically around 7 thousandths of an inch uh, with the high reflectors towards each other, causing the destructive filter area in between. Uh, the spacing is actually done with fused silica as well, which is actually contacted. There's no glue involved because that's not actually uh, thermally stable and would actually change the distance between the two plates. Uh, the light comes through, uh, bounces typically about 40 times with 39 rejections or so, and then one coming through. So that's why it's a destructive filter. And then from that point on, it's uh, uh, refocused into the rest of the system containing uh, usually a uh, a few other elements as well as the blocking filter in the back. So, yeah, I mean, it's like, so you've got like, what, 30 or so pieces of glass, 40 or so pieces of fused silica, you said, with each one having a reflective side and a, a, a pass-through side, and you reject light at each one of those pieces of glass, and at the end, you end up with the wavelength that you care about. Is that is that right? Uh, it's actually just two pieces of glass that make an edible. Oh, it's just two, two pieces of fused oh, silica with high more. reflectors in between, gapped. Okay. Um, so it's like it's like trapping light in between two mirrors of hydrogen alpha uh, wavelength um, cutoffs, and uh, every, all the other light actually gets, for the most part, gets rejected out. Um, okay. And then there's a, a basically the blocking filter is considered a notch filter at the end, uh, typically between two to six angstroms itself. 
and that actually does the final filtering of what's what what came through the etalon that might not be necessary for hydrogen alpha views. And these these filters are characterized by their uh, bandwidth, right? When you say uh, a one angstrom filter, it means that it rejects all light around sixty five, sixty two, except for one angstrom's worth on on either side. A, a a half band pass would do a little bit less, and a quarter band pass or a quarter angstrom would do even more. Um, what's the advantage? The, the, so so basically, I've always heard H alpha filters being characterized by that they are you know, single stacked or double stacked. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but, but, you know, a half angstrom or a quarter angstrom or three quarter angstrom filters. Can, can you describe what the advantage is of each of those kinds and what makes a better filter, you know, is, is narrow better than broad? I mean, uh, help us understand a little bit about how that works. Well, broad filter, uh, typically our systems are about 0.7 to 0.65 angstroms. So still a sub angstrom system. With that, you're going to get a lot, a lot of granulation across the surface. You'll still be able to see faint filaments and uh, uh, hot spots, flares. Uh, you, you're definitely, definitely great for uh, watching the proms come off and go off into space. By by adding a second etalon system, or what we call a double stack system, you actually usually bring it down to 0.5 angstrom, a half angstrom or lower, 0.45. Uh, and that will act, what that actually does is actually brings out the the, the actual granulation surface details uh, to a point where they're actually it, it kind of gives a three dimensional view of the actual sun because you can actually see the lift of uh, of the filaments across the surface and you can actually if you're lucky to have catch like what we call a filiprom or which is a filament prom that goes off the edge you'll actually be able to see it actually above and beyond the actual surface of the sun coming around and then actually leaving the leaving as the ejection of the of the actual prominence itself. Uh, you can you can see the prominences and 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 the, all the other things that with the single stack of 0 0.7, 0 0.7, 0 0.65, but it's it's when you actually double stack that it, that the that the the magic of the the surface actually comes out to towards you and becomes much more visible. So the more narrow a filter is, the more detail that you can see on the sun. Exactly. And the more contrast that you get. So a a narrow band filter is I've seen them as low as quarter quarter angstroms, and that's what uh, we used in Mauna Loa. Those those filters um, you can see all kinds of super great detail. So what? So how do you characterize your products? Do you I mean do you have? Could one buy just a three quarter angstrom filter and then later buy another? one to double stack it with or how does uh, it, it how do you get at the time of purchase so uh, you can actually just double stack from the factory or if the, with all our products they can be double stacked anywhere down the road uh, it's, it's not something with the pressure tune systems we don't have to worry about tilting or anything like that so there's no interaction between the etalons themselves that that causes a problem where anything would ever have to come back in order to be fitted to one another so that they would be working working well with each other uh, when you use a tilt system uh, and use two tilt systems, you have with, uh, a lot of uh, variables between them. If they're both tilting the same direction, if they're if one's not as not high enough to actually work with the other one, there's just a bunch of variables. But with the, with the double stack system and being and ours being a pressure tune system, they're fully adjustable up and down through both the red or red and blue shift, so you can move them back and forth across each other and and catch your best views. What's that mean? Pressure tune. Uh, pressure tune is a is a is basically an atmospheric pressure change inside the cavity. 
So it was essentially the equivalent to a person uh, running a, an Edelon up and up and up in elevation or down in elevation uh, because it's an atmospheric change. And by changing the atmosphere inside the cavity, it changes the refractive index of, of the actual air inside the cavity, which actually helps tune the actual Edelon. We don't inhibit any pressure towards the Edelon itself. We're actually just all around the entire Edelon. We're just changing the, the air, the, uh, the atmospheric pressure inside the cavity. So therefore we're not actually inhibiting any tilt or anything that would distract from your views and give you banding of any shape or form like that. And that's to keep it centered on the wavelength you want, right? That's exactly. what the tuning, the tuning is for. Cause these are, pre these are, well, temperature, I guess, and pressure sensitive filters, right? Um, it takes you, a lot of temperature to do what, what the temperature usually typically does not change the, uh, any of our systems. It's, uh, the only thing that the temperature would actually change is over the course of time. It will actually slightly increase the pressure inside the actual at atmospheric cavity. And therefore you might have to take a little bit of uh, a little bit of the pressure off in order to equalize where you were originally. Uh, but as for, as for the Edelons, they're stable with anything that you would, that, that you would be pointing at the sun with. They're, they're thermally stable to that point. When you were talking about prominences versus filaments, you want to describe the difference? What, what's the difference between a prominence and a filter and a filament? Well, uh, a, a filament is actually a prominence that's leaving the surface of the sun and coming up at you. Um, usually they look like, uh, if I'm, typically if I'm at a show or something like that and we have little kids there, I tell them, you see the little eyebrows on the, on the sun, you, you see those and they're, yeah, I see that. Well, what it is, is actually the, the prominence ejection coming off the surface. And when it comes off, it actually is cooler. So it actually shows up as, as a, as a darker color or almost to the point of dark gray black coming off the surface. And you can see, you can see the actual, uh, Oh, it would be the best way to say it. Uh, you can actually see the feathering of, of the actual prominence uh, prominence that's actually ejecting. But it is because it's on the surface, it's called a filament. When it's on the edge, where you see the outside of the edge of it, that would be called what we typically call a prominence. And then you can actually see it go off into space, and then you can see the, the feathering or, or the detail of the actual prominence itself. Most of them typically loop back around and come back and give you a nice arch. And some of them just fully eject out, and you can watch a... You can watch a lovely uh, ejection go off. Uh, I've seen a couple of them still with the, with the with with still visible two two uh, two suns out distance off the sun. So yeah. and you can just follow it out there as it as it flies off into space. Yeah, they're often they're often associated with CMEs and all kind of magnetic activity. So it's really they're really beautiful. But it's the same solar feature. But you're looking at it from different angles. On the one hand, in a filament, you're seeing it in absorption, where light is being blocked, and you're seeing it as a black, dark thing. And when you're on the limb, you're seeing it in emission, where it is uh, giving off. You're seeing the light that it's giving off, uh, off to the side. So it's and, and they're beautiful, absolutely the funnest thing to look at uh, on the sun. I think of these uh, filament and, and prominence eruptions because they're usually associated with some kind of solar storm when they go off. And uh, the ones that you see, when you see filaments going off, you have to kind of, especially if there's an active region nearby, you need to somehow hope that that's not associated with a big Earth-directed CME coming our way. <laughs> so <laughs> Turn off your but, cell phones. Turn off your cell phones, right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that's, um, well, you also make a calcium K filter, is that, or yeah, calcium K filter. Uh, what, what's, 
what what can you see with that? And um, I don't know the wavelength range of calcium KF. I think it's um, a little bit shorter than than HL three nine three. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, so what what are those like? Uh, and do, are they roughly the same cost as an H alpha filter? Describe those for us. Uh, they they compare slightly towards the same cost, uh, but they're actually it's basically a module that goes in the back of a standard telescope or one of our new modular telescopes. Oh, yeah, we haven't talked about that. Yeah, <laughs> we talked about the new modular telescopes. Um, <clears throat> and basically, uh, for the most part, most of our modules are designed to be used in in systems of, of four inch or 100 millimeters or less, uh, typically because of the heat load that has to go through the ITFs. Uh, we do offer a, a solar wedge, uh, a solar calcium wedge, but uh, it's typically used with our systems uh, because our systems are typically shorter and can allow for the extended focus beyond the wedge itself for the calcium K. Uh, for the most part, uh, it's, it's, it's another way for somebody to get into another wavelength if they already have a, a, a refractor that, that they'd like to use with that. Uh, it's not as easily visible for a lot of people, especially getting up in age, uh, because the, the purple Be blue cones here. in our eyes tend to go away earlier in life. And, uh, but we get a lot of people who actually just use them straight for photographic mm -hmm. use. The neat thing about calcium K is typically since it's further down what you're actually looking at in the, the, the actual sun itself, you can actually sometimes catch emissions that are going to be coming up soon. You can actually catch a hot spot or... Or, or, or a flare area, and you can even sometimes see the sunspots in calcium K before you'll actually even see them in a white light. So you can see things happening ahead of time. It's kind of like uh, it's like setting an alarm for something that's going to happen ahead of time. <laughs> you can actually, you know, oh wait, oh well, about you know that's that's pretty close to you know that's that's a pretty big one there. We'll we'll take a look at that and H alpha in a couple hours and see if it comes on up. So that's a good point. We should mention that, that these filters looking at the sun in different wavelengths like this allows you to look at different heights above the solar surface, right? White light, you, you typically are looking at the photosphere. Um, and in H-alpha, you're looking at the chromosphere, which is a slightly higher area, but it's a little bit below the corona. Um, and the calcium K, you said, is below, um, is below the chromosphere? Typically. It's what it because is. things rise up from the photosphere up through the chromosphere. So yeah, it's kind of a good way to see. And, and if you had a, a perfectly great filter that would let you tune to all of these wavelengths on one filter, you could just turn a dial and go, Oh, there it is in white light. Oh, here it is. in uh, here it is in, in calcium K and now uh, H alpha. And then I don't know, it'd be great if we could have some x-rays and other things to look at, but that's, <laughs> I guess, I guess you guys don't have those yet. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> um, do you see more people jumping into this this part of the hobby for visual or for imaging oh that's probably a mixed bag a little bit yeah definitely half and half on that it depends on what they're how they've come into it people who are oh well, i guess it's it's kind of variable across the board there are people who come in strictly with visual and some who are just already you know nighttime observers and are constantly looking at these photos and they're just kind of jumping at the gamut to do photography work but I, I would hesitate personally to say it's heavy one way or the other. People do tend to mix between the two, but at the same time, people who are visual stick visual and don't want to mix in the photography work, and it's kind of vice versa as well. With calcium K, like he was talking about, that tends to be more photographic just because people do have a hard time seeing it. Like, But that's that's across the board, I guess, for all wavelengths. We even get people who are, let's say, have cataracts and eye issues and have never used a solar scope before, and then 
call us back if they set up and say, I'm not quite seeing what I expect to see from these photos that I saw from NASA. And it's kind of like a, a nice talking place to people about, well, you know, how's your eyesight? Do you have any eye issues? Do you have cataracts? With cataracts? And they're like, oh, yeah, I've had these for years. I have astigmatism, right? I'm not sure if that's the reason why I can't see it. So it, uh, it, can, it can go both ways. It can, it's always a fun conversation with people is to say, well, maybe it's your eyes. I'm not sure. <laughs> Well, that's why I love it so much. And everybody knows I like visual stuff. And it's like, you, I can have every bit as an enjoyable experience and see the kind of detail um, that that, a, that an imager would see right there in the eyepiece. And there's very few things that that's true for. You also don't need to worry about light pollution or any of the nonsense that most visual observers have to deal with at night. And so it's really exciting. It's an exciting experience to look at this stuff live through an eyepiece. Um, but but we should talk about imaging because we haven't yet. So, or do you want to talk about your telescopes first? You said you hadn't talked about. Well, it's kind yet. of the same conversation, right? Because your, your new modular okay. systems, like I know the one thirty, looking at it, it comes with an eighteen millimeter blocking felt, so you could use it either way. You could use it for visual or imaging. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk about them. You, you built these modular systems, which I think was an incredible idea, by the way. And they start. Uh, well, actually, I'll let you go into it, but it, it looks like they start. Uh, pretty small and they go up to pretty big telescopes. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, our smallest is our, our 60 and, you know, to be honest with the improvements we've made with these modular systems, I mean, uh, Brian and Ben were testing one a few weeks back. Actually, maybe it was a little further than that before we had all the haze from the wildfires here, but, uh, you know, pulling more detail from a 60 than we had with our previous model. I mean, that's pretty remarkable to us. And then, you know, going up in aperture, that's only going to get better and better. Um, you know, then talking again about the different capabilities of what people can use these for. I mean, somebody can easily step into uh, going from H-alpha to white light to calcium K, um, you know, just with a couple different accessories. Um, you know, these are even, you know, the objectives on these are even nice enough that they can use them at night uh, and get image quality uh, views at night as well. So, I mean, to be able to offer that to people is a, is a pretty awesome there. Because these are fully apochromatic telescopes. These are triplets. Uh, they, uh, are they, they all triplets? I not think the, the 130, the 100 are both triplets. Um, the one, <laughs> the 100 is actually a, a triplet FPL 53. The 80 is a doublet FPL 53, and the the 60 is actually truthfully using a 70 millimeter objective. So with nighttime and for calcium K and for white light, they're actually getting 70 out of it. Uh, and that's a that's just that's a standard ED. Uh, ED telescope as well. Yeah, looking at this, um, the the 130 was, you know, the, the first one I was looking at. And at the price point, when you first see it, I'm sure that people get a little bit of sticker shock. But when you're, when you're looking at the versatility of this thing and how it can be a one and done type solution, it actually is like half the price of doing these things separately. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it allows, I mean, when with a triplet, a 130 triplet, resolution on target is going to be phenomenal for imaging. Uh, I'm sure the views visually are nothing to laugh at either. Um, but the 100 here, I mean, that is a, for the price points, I mean, starting at under $6,000 for a triplet scope in that range, that's a good price point, even if it were just for a night scope. So the versatility on these is really, it's, it's impressive. Well, does that mean there doesn't need to be much difference in OTAs between solar and nighttime observing? No, most of our OTAs are typically uh, based on a night on a on a, a 
nighttime telescope uh, using the same objectives as, as, as a nighttime telescope would. And you said the 60 is the one you've been testing recently, right? Oh, we've been testing all of them recently, but just uh, she 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 happened. Faye doesn't always come out in the testing realm, so she she just happened to catch a six, some sixties going through it that that day <laughs> as she was out there. <laughs> and, and so, if somebody wants to get the, in at the at, at the sixty level, those packages that you have, you know, for seventeen, eighteen hundred bucks, that's everything included. That's the scope and everything you need for day or night observing or imaging. Yeah, you're spot on based on the packages. I think there's maybe four levels based on each certain aperture size, but mm-hmm. like the 60 basic, the starter, the observer, and so on and so forth for the 8100s. That was kind of the, what we were going for specifically, us kind of having a powwow session and sitting down and saying, what would someone need based on what they're looking to spend and what they're trying to get involved in and trying to get a one-stop shop out of the door based on which package you're looking for, whether there's additional star diagonals for terrestrial or nighttime or eyepieces or what have you. And it, it it's been well it's been well received. I have to be honest with you that with them being so many options, people kind of flutter back and forth between the two and ultimately choose whoever's perfect for them. Well, can we talk about that a little bit? What advice do you give people that are coming to you for the first time and going, "I kind of want to do solar observing"? What's the advice? What where do you point them? It, it depends on what they're looking to do with it. Honestly, it depends on how they're planning on to use it. If they're just kind of like a backyard, every now and again guy. Well, you'll start for the smaller aperture sizes, but the truth of the matter is, they're also going to probably throw out a price point almost immediately of what they're trying to stay around and what they're trying to achieve, and whether they are doing photography and that kind of fun stuff. So it, it's kind of a multifaceted thing. It's really kind of carried around what they're looking for, who they've come into contact with that kind of led them to us in the first place, and kind of getting as close to their expectations as possible. Because I mean, across the board, and I know we all work for a lot, so we're happy to say it. Like the scopes are fantastic, even down to the fifty. But mm-hmm. you really have to figure out what the person's looking for, what they're expecting, what image size they're looking for, what they're trying to capture, and kind of go that way. Sometimes people really are just looking for white light or just calcium K, just something fun to do. But there's always a people who are looking for that much more, and you have to kind of navigate that with them. So there's not kind of a generic piece of advice one would get. No, no. I mean, if in, unless it's strictly price based, there isn't there isn't quite a one scope will push people for kind of towards based on what it is. It's just, I mean, people fall in the same kind of lines of what they're looking to do. Just kind of get out there for fun, travel around, be in this type of environment, and keep it lightweight. And we might stick for the sixty or the eighty. But it really does depend on what they're, what exactly they're trying to do. It's always kind of a, a very specific conversation with the person to kind of make sure that they're satisfied as soon as they have it. Well, what about the imagers then? The imagers come to you and they say, hey, I've been taking pictures of, of these deep sky objects or planets or whatever it happens to be. Uh, now I want to do the sun. Uh, can their cameras uh, be used uh, for uh, solar uh, imaging or do they have to get something more, a little more specialized? I would say yes and no. It depends on what kind of camera they have. We do tend to push people towards monochromatic CC, uh, CCD cameras, but DSLRs are kind of the cream of the crop out there for a lot of people. So that's kind of the conversation. If they're already an established photographer and have a certain type of camera with a certain chip size, we'll kind of make sure we're getting them into a scope that would accommodate that and work well with it. But if they're kind of fresh out the boat and don't have a, uh, a camera in mind or a telescope in mind, then it's all possibilities are out there. There are some restrictions, let's say. Some people have very specific cameras that just don't have a chip size or accommodate image size or will vignette. But it really, there's always going to be a scope that's going to work for someone based on what they have, in my opinion. So, I mean, Dustin and I talked about this a little bit last week when we talked about planetary cameras and deep sky object cameras. Uh, because the sun is an extended object, um, do you benefit from the planetary uh, camera type or do you 
Do you need small pixel size and all that stuff? Uh, general pixel size between three to seven microns is fine. Um, okay. Typically, the biggest thing is since basically most of our scopes are truly because of the wavelength and the cutoff and being so 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 short, uh, they're basically a monochromatic image, even though you're seeing that specific color associated with that. So for best taking pictures, uh, monochromatic works the best because they, it's basically on or off with the with the, the photon coming hitting the CCD. Because the ca uh, color camera color cameras typically are uh, split three ways: so RGB, red, blue, red, blue, green. Um, you're basically wasting between depending on the sensor to two uh, two thirds to even as much as three quarters with the green, green, blue, red uh, versions that are out there. Uh, of the actual light coming in. So while they can use a color camera for taking pictures of, of the sun, most of everything that you ever see anywhere on the internet or photos that we show and all that like that are typically monochromatic black and white photographs that are then just quickly colorized. Right, because H alpha is sixty five, sixty two. That's red. <laughs> so all you need to do is just, you know, whatever, whatever you're gonna do, you're gonna end up with a grayscale image of the moon and the CC or of the sun and the CCD. Uh, just apply a red color table to it, and uh, and you'll get a real, a really nice picture out of it. Is there anything new coming up that you guys are excited about? Uh, well, yes. we're, bringing, <laughs> we're bringing back a new entry level telescope with the forty, uh, which is giving a Real nice image size, easy portability, uh, wonderful views, uh, and an excellent price point. Uh, so that's that's probably the, the the next thing coming out that people notice coming up very quickly. That's probably coming without them within the next month. That's available in a variety of different combinations, and eventually, of course, we'll we'll double stack that one as well. Yeah, I love these scopes, and I'm really glad that uh, uh, you know one of the things that I'm amazed by in all the years I've been involved in solar imaging is that just how much the price has come down for some of these what are really can be characterized as professional grade filters, right? I mean, um, professional astronomers can use these filters uh, to do their research in. And so one of the things that, I mean, my, just to give you a quick story, the very first time I ever used an H-alpha filter was way back in 1979, I think. This was uh, for the eclipse that was in Montana. And we got access to, my teacher at the time got access to a Daystar filter, which was which fit on the back of a C8 telescope. And I think this thing cost close to $10,000. And this was in 1970s money, right? So this was hugely uh expensive and it had a little temperature control knob on it and all kinds of other things. But the, but now the price of solar observing has come to a point where almost everybody can do this and they can get complete solar observing systems for much less than that. Oh yeah. This little 40 I'm looking at, look at this little what? 40 on the side. You're, you guys are selling that thing for way under a thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's happened? What, what do you think's happened over the years that have caused these filters to come down in price so much uh a little bit of competition because uh, it's not it's not that we're not doing anything that we didn't used to as, as a matter of fact typically we we actually keep ex getting more more bang for the buck on everything we do uh, our coatings keep getting better uh telescopes keep getting better you know, it, uh, all the optics keep getting better it's just, uh, I think, I think competition is the biggest thing. Uh, back when you said in 1979, it was Daystar. That was it. 
Yeah. Uh, so that we, that when you are the where you are the one and only, you can charge what you want to charge for for something like that. Mm-hmm. Because when you know what's in Daystar, ten thousand dollars in nineteen seventy nine is probably equivalent to about forty something thousand nowadays. So <laughs> I don't know how we got that filter. I honestly don't. <laughs> it, it, so, it was yeah, like but, it was like there, and we had it in our box. I'm like, what's this? Goes, oh, that's a H Alpha. Of course, my teacher was the only one allowed to touch it, but it was still, you know, I don't know how we ended up with that. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about um, your, your quality control, a little bit about how you guys look at your telescopes and, and make sure they're what you need uh, before you send them out the door? Oh, well, every, every single item that comes through our, through our, through our stores that we, we produce here is always tested on the sun. So, I mean, unfortunately now with the, with the beautiful wildfires, we can't test them a lot. Any, any solar telescope is tested on the sun. Any solar product is tested on the sun. Thank you all for joining us and, and talking about Lund and all the things you're doing. It's very exciting times. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank yeah, you, guys. I appreciate it, the, the invitation. Oh, you're very welcome. So, Faye Roman, ben, ben Lombardo, and Brian Stevens, thank you all from Lund Telescopes for joining us today and talk about solar observing. Uh, we hope you'll come back and join us again. we got some cool stuff to introduce for, uh, for uh, new products or anything like that. We hope you'll come on back. And on behalf of Dustin Gibson, my name's Tony Darnell. I want to thank you all so much for listening to our humble little podcast. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. 